Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life. We are convinced that the Bible is God's holy word, perfect and without error. Its perfection delivers what is good and beneficial for those who hear it and heed it. It is perfect for it leads us to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus. He is the bread of life. Let us seek him together through God's word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. In Genesis chapter 26, Isaac had to remove the rubble his enemies had put in the wells that his father Abraham had dug. For us Christians, our enemy is also filling the well of our salvation with rubble. He wants to keep us from the rich life and promise found in God and in God's word to us. One of the major notes in the new scholarship of the Bible now in vogue among some young evangelicals is the idea that the word as we have it and hold it in our hands is not sufficiently clear to the average layman. We're being led to think that somehow we need experts with skills in the ancient languages and fresh discoveries of historical data from the past to tell us what really is to be understood in the biblical text. Generations of common thought on these texts must be re-scrutinized by those who have been given a renewed scholarship. And as a result, each individual is wedged further away from confidence before the Word of God as an open book in his or her hands. Really, this is doubt in the perspicuity, the clarity, the simple common-sense interpretation of the Scripture. And additionally, it is a shadow over the doctrine of the illumination of the Holy Spirit of the Scriptures to the heart and mind of the believer. All of this is rubble in the wells of our salvation, and it keeps us from drinking freely from all that God has for us. Let's pull this rubble out. A person comes to Christ, they believe Him as Savior and Lord, the Spirit of God comes and fills them and renews them, they're born again. There's a flush of power and energy that God places upon their lives. They go out with this sense of newfound, new discovered authority that's upon them as new beings in Christ. And then they begin to think, thank you, God, for providing this for me. I'm able now to go a little on my own. And they begin to press out in the life of faith in their own flesh and their own power and trusting in their own wisdom. And initially... It's as if the immunities of this new life are upon them. You ever know how little babies seem to have a little special pocket or surrounding of immunity from the sicknesses of this age, but it wears off. They're supposed to learn to be wise and to stay away from infectious things, and eventually they become susceptible. happens to us as well. And at that point in time, we realize that we need to get back to the very founding point of our faith when we look to Jesus Christ and we trusted in Him for everything, and yet when we want to go back to that refreshing spring of water and life that flowed up to us at that initial moment when we gave our life to Christ, we'll discover oftentimes that the enemy, as soon as we turn our face away from a complete and utter dependency upon Christ, sneaks up behind us, and he throws rubble into the well. And he tries to restrict us from getting back to the bubbling up of the spring of the life that we're to have and enjoy in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, come unto me and drink of me and out of the inmost being will flow rivers of living water. And that's supposed to be an expression of the normal Christian life. We're supposed to be individuals who drink so deeply of the Spirit of Christ and the life of Christ that it not only satisfies us, but it flows out like a river upon all those around us. But as we trust in our flesh and even depend upon our flesh to deliver and help us produce what we consider to be good and right things that God has called us to do, we turn ourselves away from that spring and that river and that life and the river doesn't flow from our lives to others, and it barely flows up to us to nourish our own lives. We need to get back to that well. 
This is historically that moment when we get back to the well, we pull the rubble out and the water begins flowing again. This is historically in the life of the church been called revival. And so that's really what we're talking about. A renewal, a reviving of the work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. A renewal and a reviving of the work of the Spirit in the life of our churches. And if there's ever a day and age, and we should long to see that happen in the churches of North America, it ought to be now. Now that's something of a sovereign movement of God in our life. We can't necessarily influence what God does from age to age, but we can have some influence on what He does in our own life. We can extract the rubble in the well from our own life so that the spring of life of that water would flow up to our own refreshing. And if enough individuals do that in one place, the water not only flows in their life, it flows out of their lives upon those around them, and they receive refreshing as well, and then revival might come to a little church. And from that little church, revival could come to the communities around it into a city, and God's Spirit works in such a way. So what we spoke about and what we've been speaking about is what is the rebel that gets into that well? What is it that gets into the well to restrict us from this refreshing life that we are to find in the Lord Jesus Himself? When we turn our eyes off of Him and look to our own flesh for the performance of even our good works, what is it that the enemy throws in the well behind us that we need to pull out? We mentioned two weeks ago the first piece of rubble that's put in and the first piece of rubble that needs to go out and it's the rubble of unbelief in a living and acting God. It's not that we don't believe that God doesn't exist. It's not that we don't even hold very carefully to the traditional or the biblical teachings that we have of God. It's not that we don't hold that God is all-powerful and God is eternal and infinite and that He's the Creator and that He's holy and that He's just. It's not that we deny the Trinity we believe all these things, but they have become merely points of intellectual notification in our minds. We even may believe in them so much that we might be willing to battle another person who doesn't believe in those things. We might be willing to say we believe in them so strongly that if anybody were to teach something that were to pull away from and draw back from these great truths of the character and nature of God, that we would insist that they be silent in our churches. But although we believe in them and hold to them, somehow in our lives, it's not up to date in our own calculation, our own consideration. The reality is from day to day, we live as though God were an abstraction. And though verbally and intellectually might profess that we believe in God, uh, from day to day and moment to moment, we have far more agnostic moments than believing moments. We even have some atheistic moments which we live as though God were not around and God were not inserting Himself and God were not acting and what we say isn't revealed in what we do and how we live. A conscious awareness that we live in the presence of a living, holy, acting God who will act and will not be denied and will not be mocked. And when we believe in a God like that, it will be reflected in the kinds of prayers that we pray There'll be prayers that are prayed for great things and they won't be mundane and they'll be very specific and they'll be infused with personal ardor and passion and it will be reflected in the attitudes we have towards our private life. We said before, if you're more concerned about what people know about your private life or might find out about your private life than what God does know, well, that reveals that somehow God has become an abstraction in your life. 
God's just become an idea in your mind and you're not living before Him. Once God is distanced from ourselves in this way, the next piece of rubble that gets in the well is that we no longer have a confidence in His Word because we lack a belief that God has spoken and that God continues to speak. It's not that we deny that this Bible is the Word of God. It's not necessarily that we deny that this Bible is inerrant and without error and that was given by individuals who were moved by the Spirit. But somehow, even though we believe all that and we say all that, we feel as though God is not present in this Word speaking still. Or His voice has become so dim to us in our unbelief that in order for us to generate any enthusiasm or any sense of excitement about the Word, what we have to do is we have to, in a sense, mediate it to our own lives by our own ingenuity, by our own thoughts and by our own ideas. So now we don't come to this Word and put ourselves under the Word saying, what does God think and what does God say in this Word? But we come to the Word and we bring it to ourselves thinking, what do I think and what do I feel about the Word? It's not what God means in this Word, it's what this word means to me that excites me, enthuses me, and makes me feel as though it's relevant and can be applied to my life. Really what I'm doing is, because I've pushed God off to a distance, I take His word and I push myself closer before the word and I put myself between God and the word and now God is not standing sovereign over His word speaking to me, but I'm standing sovereign over the word. I'm saying what's important in this word is what it says to make me feel good what it says to meet my needs, how it satisfies my wants and my wishes and answers my questions and whether it gives me helpful instruction for managing my life. And these are the rules that I apply to come before this word and extract anything for myself. I don't come under the voice of God in this word. I stand over the word. I don't come to this word as if I'm listening to the voice of God. I come to this Word like I'm reading the newspaper and I pick and choose the articles that I want to read for my own self-interest. Just choose. It becomes a smorgasbord for my own interest and taste instead of something that's compelling because God has spoken. It's kind of a subjectivism is what we call a hyper-personalization of the word. And as a result of that, what develops in our life is the Bible becomes nothing more than a book of ethics or a bunch of feel-good quotable quotes bunch of things that we can uh, put onto a slogan and we can paste up somewhere for everybody to see so they can know that we actually think of a, a positive thought every once in a while. Well, there's a danger. That's what happens when the reader becomes sovereign over this word because they've lost their belief in God and as a result they've lost their real belief that God has spoken in this word and still speaks in this word. As I said, they interject themselves before that word. But listen, and this is what we want to build on today. And since this is the unbelief in the Word of God, not only does it develop in us a subjectivism, that's one way that we can go, where I insert my feelings and my attitudes between the Word and myself. But the other thing that can happen, just as really, is that I insert my intellect and my mind and my ability to manage the text and understand its original languages. And I insert a kind of textualism between the Word or a, a rationalism between myself and the Word. And in such a way, again, I don't bring myself to yield before the voice of the Holy Spirit. And this becomes rubble in the well as well. And I want to explain this to you. Ultimately, what's happening here is that we've come to a point where we've failed to see, as I've said, that God not only has spoken, but that God still speaks. Right now, right here, 
in this present moment through this word. That God has spoken is the doctrine of revelation. God spoke as men were led by the Holy Spirit. This scripture, as we read in 2 Timothy, is God-breathed. It's God's voice. That's revelation. God, at some point in time in history, moved upon individuals so that they wrote down God's holy words so that exactly what they wrote down through their personality was exactly what God wanted to say. That's revelation. God revealing himself in a special and wonderful and clear way in this word. That's why we say it's God's word. But that's not all that's there. Not only has God spoken, but God speaks to this word. Now, that's a different doctrine than revelation. That's the doctrine of illumination. That the same spirit who spoke this word and historically gave it speaks to us still and reveals it to our hearts. He illumines us. The individual has given their life to Jesus Christ and believed on him as Lord and Savior, receives in their life the presence of God himself. The Holy Spirit comes and brings to us the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Holy Spirit does, living and abiding within us, is that he becomes an instructor of his word. He illumines his word to us. We don't have to mediate the teaching of God's word through our subjectivism. What does it mean to me? Does it make me feel good? Does it solve my problems? We don't have to mediate through my intellectual, well, how do I parse this verb? And my confidence is not in my ability to somehow understand all the theological tenets. The Spirit of God can mediate it directly to my heart because He lives in me. That's the doctrine of illumination. I hope you can join us in our next broadcast as we go further into this wonderful doctrine and understand its impact on our lives today. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. For a copy of this broadcast, just call us at 208-331-4096. Until then, God bless you.